15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again, and thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast, where we talk astronomy and space science. It's great to have your company again this week. My name's Andrew Dunkley. I am your host. I don't do anything, but uh, we will be talking with uh, the good Professor Fred Watson shortly. Today on the program, we're going to look at the age of moon rocks, and you can tell the age of moon rocks because of the use-by date that's on the bottom of them all. Uh, but um, on a serious side, the Chang'e 5 mission uh, up there at the moment and uh, what they've discovered has been quite surprising. So we'll be looking into that as well as radio signals discovered from distant stars. And audience questions, we've got a new batch of audio questions. Uh, Dr. Robert Scott on the Sunshine Coast wants to ask us a couple of questions about the temperature of a black hole and what is space-time made of. It's made of space and time. So I'm told. And uh, Martin from Wollongong uh, wants to know why Jupiter and other uh, gas giants haven't been turned into rocky planets by asteroids after billions of years of, of impacts, which is a really good question. We'll uh, look into that as well as many other things. Joining us, uh, as always, on Space Nuts is the good professor himself, Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How's he going? Oh, good. We're, we're out of lockdown. Yeah, we're we out are. of That's lockdown. Right. But we, we're oh. not totally out because I can't come and no. see you in Dubbo and you can't come and see me in Sydney. No. However, Sydney's off limits, so yeah. I can't go and see my boys, but I can go and see me mum. Yeah, I can see your uh, mum. That's so. right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I became a great uncle this week. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, my um, nephew and his partner had a baby girl on Freedom Day, as they called it, 11th on Monday. Of, 11th of October. Yeah, so that was a <laughs> lovely surprise. So it was a double bonus day for us, so very, very happy. And it was. It used to be my Auntie Dot's birthday as well. There you go. So oh, there you are. There's yeah. a connection there. She's no longer All good. with us. <laughs> now, Fred, we have got a little bit to tackle today. Now, we, we've talked about the Changi 5 mission on a few occasions, in fact, I think we probably mentioned the Chinese moon mission last week, having cracked a 1,000 days on the lunar yeah. surface, which is a great milestone. But now there's some more news on what's happening on the moon with uh, the Chinese mission Chang'e 5, etc. Yeah, that's right. So I think it might it might be Chang'e 4 that was uh, the 1,000-day. Yeah, it might be too. Yeah, because that's the I one on the far side of the, of the moon. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. So Chang'e 5... Um, was a pretty rapid mission uh, carried out last December. Uh, the spacecraft landed on the moon on the 1st of December, uh, settled there for a few days, and then basically scooped up uh, samples of the moon's surface uh, and uh, shot off the surface again, rendezvoused with its mothership. This was fantastic stuff. Uh, mm. That then flew back to the Earth and dropped a re-entry capsule, which landed on the 16th of December, which uh, is not only Beethoven's birthday, but it was my late father's as well. While we're talking about birthdays, there you go. <laughs> 16th of December last year, so that's when the samples landed. And since then, of course, they've been analysed to bits. 
uh, and uh, analysed to death. Uh, I think there were about two kilograms. I think it was a significant Gee, that's a big uh, chunk. Amount. Um, uh, I should check that figure, but my recollection is that it was, it, it was, um, a, you know, a decent sized sample. Um, see if I can verify that. No, I can't easily, but we'll find out later on, probably. I'll, anyway, I'll try it, and find it for you. Yeah, it's enough that um, you know that that all the kind of uh, all the. Um, Armory of the Earth's laboratories have been able to be essentially directed to it, uh, so it's had um, a really uh, good thorough going over. Um, and what has happened is quite surprising, because the uh, the outcome is that these rocks are significantly younger, uh, or the, the, the soil samples are significantly younger. Uh, than uh, what we brought, what we saw coming back from the Apollo missions and the Soviet Union returned samples back in the sixties. Oh, so you, when, you know, when you told me we were doing this story, I thought you were going to say the opposite. So that's interesting. One thousand seven hundred thirty-one grams. There you go. Nearly two kilograms. Yeah. Nearly two kgs. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, I'm sorry you. to conf- sorry to confuse all our American listeners with <laughs> that metric. Uh, what is it? Four sixty sixty one point one ounces. Yeah. Oh. Oh, that can't be right. No, it doesn't uh, sound right to me. Uh, well, no, no, it's right. Yes, it's about. It's nearly four pounds. Yep. Uh, so okay. that's yeah. So um, it's a good solid chunk actually. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, the, 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 these rocks are younger. So the, the the critical thing here, Andrew, is where they came from, because uh, the uh, the samples, the, the basaltic samples that came from the Oceanus Procellarum on the moon, the ocean of storms. And Oceanus Procellarum is the only ocean on the moon. And remember, the oceans are actually basalt plains, or the seas, I mean, are basalt plains. <clears throat> Most of them are seas, uh, like the Sea of Tranquility, um, the Sea of Crises, all of those. But there's one ocean, which is uh, the ocean of storms. And it's big. That's why it's called an ocean. It covers... Uh, from our perspective, uh, in the southern hemisphere, it covers most of the right-hand half of the moon. So the way around in the northern hemisphere. Yes, it um, is, um, and uh, it's a very large area. And the you know the so the the, uh, the other basalt plains, uh, like the Sea of Crises, the Sea of Tranquility, the Sea of Rains, all of these, when you look at them uh, on a map of the moon, they're more or less circular. Uh, and they are impact basins. They're, what happened was in the moon's early history, something big clouded it, an asteroid, uh, made a gigantic crater, which is big enough to be called an impact basin, which then filled with basalt due to tectonic activity, probably following the, following the impact. But uh, Oceanus Procellarum is different because even though it's still thought to be at least partly a large impact basin. Uh, the I think it was the Grail satellites. There were two Grail spacecraft called Ebb and Flow, uh, and Grail uh, was I think Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory. That's what the acronym was. It's a NASA pair of spacecraft that sampled the gravity of the Moon and looked in particular for concentrations of mass beneath the surface what are called mascons. They were called that back in the 1960s. And they found that Oceanus Procellarum 
was actually almost a rectangular basin with huge rift valleys delineating its four sides. Uh, it's a bit right. more untidy than that. But that led to the suggestion that its origin was actually volcanic rather than being created by an impact, you know, by an impact. Oh. Um, and so that's... Uh, you know that's the that's the thing that differentiates uh, the ocean of storms from the other seas on the moon, and so maybe it's not so much of a surprise that uh, whereas the rock samples that have brought back from the moon with the Apollo and Luna programs um, that most of them uh, were formed between three point eight and three billion years ago. But the new ones, the new samples, are kind of half that age. Um, I think mm. 2 billion years is the typical answer. Um, I'm just looking to see if I can find a, a, a more precise number. But I think there are, you know, there's a variation in, in years. Um, so, so that would mean this is fresh rock that's been volcanically layered that's on right. that, yes, yeah, yeah, um, and it, and it is. It's it's uh, it's younger than two billion years old. That's the that's the the, the bottom line with this story. Uh, and so, they didn't just scratch this off the surface, did they? They did a bit of digging. I, b- I believe they did a uh, a one meter core sample. Um, yeah, it was it was yes, that's right. It's it's not just surface soil, um, and yeah, the the answer is the the typical age is one point nine seven billion years. So. Uh, you know, definitely younger. Um, so the, you know, the, the interesting thing now is to work out how that could have happened uh, because the, you know, the, the moon is relatively cold uh, in its interior and volcanism is something that we think has now essentially died away. Mm. So uh, something happened that's basically created um, created uh, volcanic activity at that relatively late time in the moon's history. Um, so, do, do we know what the moon would have been like environmentally two billion years ago? Not much different from what it is now, in fact. Ah, uh, so that does make it a rather yeah. interesting mystery. Yeah, that's right. Um, the so there's there's a, a, a local uh, aspect to this story as well because some um, people at the University of Queensland are, are working with the Chinese scientists who've been doing this. There are also members from the US, the UK, and Sweden. And apparently, the lab uh, in which these analyses were done is among the best in the world. Um, mm-hmm. One of the one of the scientists from University of Queensland says they did a phenomenal job in characterising and analysing the volcanic rocks samples so uh yeah really interesting stuff so the puzzle is why the you know why the 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 moon sort of erupted into huge volcanic activity i mean this oceanus procellarum is about two and a half thousand kilometers across uh it's it's um not small so uh i think that's yeah i I think it's a story still you know that's still being told Um, so once again a discovery creates so many more questions how how could this have happened yeah Uh, and and the analysis seems pretty clear that yes what we have discovered is younger rock that was volcanically distributed but how how did that happen if the uh, you know there was no activity on the moon of that kind that we know of 
Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it does raise so many questions, doesn't it? Yeah, mm. that's, that's so. That, that's right. Um, one of the scientists involved uh, is uh, says that um, um, by the time the moon had be by by the by two million years ago, the moon had begun to cool. The amount of magma being generated dropped off quickly. Um, and one of the one of the suggestions is that uh, residual radioactivity in the moon's interior with isotopes like uranium, thorium, potassium, uh, basically produce the heat necessary for this late vol volcanism to, to occur. Mm. Um, but then there's another puzzle because the Chang'e 5 samples don't show those radioactive elements in the, you know, in the, um, in the material that they've sampled. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it, 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 it is a puzzle. There's another suggestion that's been made too, Andrew. I'm just throwing them into the mix here. Um, sure. and, and that is, we know that two billion years ago, the moon was significantly nearer to the Earth than it is now uh, because it's got this constant drift at the moment. It's 2.36, I think, centimetres per year uh, drifting away from the moon. Um, actually, no, it's about 3.6, if I remember rightly. I guess you get my numbers right. 3.6 centimetres uh, per, per annum drifting away from this, sorry, from the Earth, the moon drifting away from the Earth. So two billion years ago, it was much nearer. And that means that the tidal effects of the Earth on the moon would be, you know, squeezing and squashing the moon much more than it is now. Oh, so like the gas giant effect. That, well, the effect of uh, Jupiter on Io, exactly, yeah. that we've got this volcanically active body orbiting Ju uh, Jupiter. Um, we, we we may well have had a similar phenomenon on the moon. So there, there might have been volcanism on the moon later than uh, later than people thought. Toothpaste tube theory. That's it. That's the one. Yeah. Yes. Just squeeze a little lava out. Put a little love in your heart, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that may well be the piece of the puzzle that's uh, that's missing, but uh, I suppose they'll have to do a lot more work to um, confirm that. But it, it's got to be something simple. It's always got to be something simple. You know, well, we hope the... so, so we can talk about it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, <laughs> while we're still on the moon, I, I just picked up on a story today that uh, when NASA goes back to the moon in the not-too-distant future, they'll be driving around a rover, an Australian-made rover, which I think is very exciting. Yeah, it's a robotic one, uh, but yeah. and it will, it will um, likely precede the land, the human landings. We don't know that for certain yet. Mm. Um, but I think 2025 is when this uh, Australian-made rover might well be deployed, and that's now, I think, the date that people uh, reckon that um, astronauts will return to the moon. So, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I've, I've already seen some of the schematics, uh, and it's okay. uh, shaped like a Holden Ute. <laughs> it's going to be a ripper. <laughs> yeah. It'd have to be, really, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I reckon. With the I word so. Bonzo written on the side or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> the, the People's Rover, it's going to be called. The People's yeah. Rover. Mm, all right, this is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a short break so I can tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, uh, a virtual private network is something that I think a lot of people need these days. Uh, there are so many scams and so many hackers and so many criminals out there trying to get your data and they do it in unsavory ways and they do it very cleverly. Uh, as time has gone on, 
uh, hackers and scammers have been able to come up with more and more clever ways to get into your system. And a VPN service will certainly protect you from those kinds of people. Uh, I also recommend you don't click on links for uh, emails that you are uncertain about because that's another way they get to you. But NordVPN is the best in the business. It's the fastest. It's the most reliable. It is available uh, on up to six devices on all major platforms from Windows to iOS to your smart TV. Just about anything that you use that connects to the internet, you can protect through NordVPN. Now, one of the things I've told you about in terms of NordVPN in recent times is how fast it is. I've just connected my NordVPN and I've done a speed test. Now, I'm on a 50-20 plan, so 50 megabits per second download, 20 megabits per second upload. Now, those are numbers that you rarely achieve given you know the the wide use of the internet and the number of people that are logged on at any given time i've just uh, logged on to nordvpn through a sydney server and i've done a speed test my download speed came in at 45.25 megabits per second which is pretty damn quick and my upload speed was 17.6 so that's with the vpn activated uh, which is um pretty much the same and sometimes better than I get when I'm not connected to my VPN. So it's it's certainly a very reliable system and I have no complaints about it and I certainly recommend it to you. Now we have a special URL so that you can get a, a special deal for NordVPN as a Space Nuts listener and that is nordvpn.com slash Space Nuts and as a part of that deal you'll get two years plus four months, two years plus four months. And I think it's uh, it adds up to about a 70% discount overall just because you're a space nut. That's nordvpn.com slash space nuts. Check it out today and get yourself hooked up with NordVPN. Now, back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. And thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can become a patron of Space Nuts by jumping on our website and clicking on the supporter button, or you can just go to the URL patreon.com slash space nuts. And there, if you so desire, and it's not mandatory, you can uh, sign up as a, a patron and uh, chuck a couple of bucks in our uh, bucket every month. And uh, it just helps to keep this uh, Space Nuts uh, dream alive. So uh, look it up, patreon.com slash Space Nuts. Or if you're not a Patreon fan, you can do it via Supercast. There are all sorts of options. But uh, best way to find out what we do and how we do it and, and what we do with the money, which goes into the Fred Watson Pension Fund, is to... Um, Go to our website and and check it all out. Now, Fred, uh, let's uh, move on to the next story, and this one is uh, another University of Queensland yarn, I think. Uh, yeah, and that, in, uh, I, in part, I apologise because um, I attributed uh, some of the Changi Five story to the University of Queensland, which is incorrect. Oh, but there, okay. there is an there is an Australian um, component, uh, so I I do beg the pardon of uh, various Australian universities. 
<laughs> don't want anything more to do with me. Uh, but, but the University of Queensland certainly played a part in this story that we are about to do now. <laughs> Which is about uh, radio signals uh, discovered from distant stars. Now, I, I think I heard something again in the news only today about these uh, about radio signals being detected uh, and they, they haven't been able to exactly pinpoint where they're from, but they've picked up quite a few. I'm wondering if this is the same story or if, or if this is a difference. It is, okay. Yeah, it's the so, same story. Yeah, yeah we've, it, it, we've got more, more wow signals by the sound of it. Um, well, maybe, maybe not wow, but um, wow, interesting. <laughs> what's, um, what's a slightly less, uh, you know, uh, active oh, version of wow? Uh, gosh. Gosh, that's gosh it. Signals. Yes, they're gosh signals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad we sorted that out. Golly gosh and gee whiz signals. <laughs> Um, so uh, it's a story that originates actually in um, a radio telescope array uh, in the Netherlands. Um, so the Dutch National Radio Observatory, uh, which is called Astron, um, has uh, what is still um, probably the it may be the most powerful low frequency array on the planet, although the Murchison Wide Field Array here in Australia, which is also low frequency, must be close behind. Um, but that low frequency array has an acronym that is LOFAR, the Low Frequency Array. That's a really good one. Uh, yeah. And, it, and it, in fact, it's not just in the Netherlands. Um, I've visited some of the LOFAR sites, and one in France, I remember, a few years ago. Uh, so it's an array of... Uh, Basically, dipole antennas—they're you, you know—they're not um, dishes; they're they're things fairly close to the ground. But they, the the radio signals that they process are, as the name suggests, low frequency, and you don't need a a big dish for that. You, you do it with dipoles. And in fact, the, the clever bit is you steer these things around electronically. You can point it um, in different directions. In fact, you can point it in different directions simultaneously. You do it all in the electronics. Very similar technology to what the square kilometre array itself will use. Ah, anyway. Clever. So uh, this is a study of uh, radio signals from stars. Now, stars are not... Uh, great at emitting radio signals mm. um, because um, they you know most of their energy is delivered in the visible light spectrum uh, however uh, these stars have been found to have uh, radio emission and uh, they are a particular type of star they're red dwarf stars uh, and they're relatively distant as well as they've looked at a selection of 19 uh, distant red dwarf stars. Why do you get radio emission from red dwarfs? Because they're very active. They've got star spots, um, and you know they are regions on a star surface because they're highly magnetized. They uh, emit radio radiation fairly copiously, uh, and that's one reason why the sun is actually the brightest object in our radio skies because we're relatively close to it. But there's all this activity, magnetic activity, going on on the sun's surface, and it all, it, it all um, emits radio waves. So they, that's all well and good. They've, they've looked in detail at the way these radio signals from the red dwarf stars operate, but four of them are different. Um, and they look, they've got a different characteristic to them uh, and what that 
says is that something else other than the sunspots or the star spots on these red dwarfs is probably causing it. And the best fits to the data uh, in terms of modeling is that these stars have planets which are experiencing auroral activity uh, because of the because the star itself is active, it's got star spots on it. That means that this, this powerful solar winds or star winds, if we can call them that, stellar winds, uh, which would be interacting with planets in the vicinity. And if those planets have magnetic fields, then you're going to get uh, aurorae. Um, you probably get them whether they've got magnetic fields or not, but they'll they'll be certainly more intense with magnetic fields on the planets, and that uh, causes radio signals, and that is what they think they've detected. Okay, so when we have um, uh, aurorae on Earth, we are transmitting to the yeah. to the greater universe as a consequence. In fact, this week there was a large coronal mass ejection that, that that's hit Earth, and they were were worried it would cause electronic problems uh, or interference. I haven't heard of anything, but uh, apparently um, yesterday, in real terms, our time, uh, there were um, some really good uh, aurorae uh, visible uh, on the planet. So, uh, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a big one, apparently. Yeah. Um, yes, there's, there was lots of uh, uh, aurora pictures on Twitter this morning, I noticed. Mm. And I uh, had a look at the sun either yesterday or the day before, um, I've got um, binoculars with uh, solar filters on them, Andrew, so I can have a quick look at the sun from time to time to see what it's looking like. And there's a, a, a spot right in the middle of the disk, uh, and that's the kind of thing that you might expect to act, you know, active uh, activity to, 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 to generate something coming in our direction. So it yeah. all makes sense. Um, so, uh, the, but but the, the there's a bit more to this um, Astron story because they they're suggesting that um, that there is maybe material that's coming from these planets that's uh, interacting uh, with the magnetic fields of the planet and the and the subatomic particles coming from the uh, you know from the stars themselves and th what they're doing is they're drawing a parallel with once again eo jupiter's moon eo which is highly volcanic and so mm -hmm. it's it's actually churning material out into space uh, and that's what really amplifies the aurorae uh, if you've got um, you know dust coming from volcanic eruptions finding its way into space uh, that actually essentially um it basically uh, creates an environment that is more conducive to bright aurorae or to intense aurorae. Now, the thing about these distant planets is, of course, we can't see the planets at all. Um, there's, at the moment, I don't think, any evidence other than this that yeah. these stars have planets. But it's certainly work that will will uh, be followed up. Um, one of the um, it's uh, one of the um, researchers, Benjamin Pope, who's at University of Queensland, uh, comments. Uh, actually, there's quite a few comments. I might, I might. Um, well, what what is comments? There's a few comments from different members of the team. Uh, Benjamin Pope says we can't be hundred percent sure that the four stars we think are planets are indeed planet hosts, but we can say that a planet star interaction is the best 
explanation for what we're seeing. Follow-up observations have ruled out planets more massive than the Earth, but there's nothing to say that a smaller planet wouldn't do this. Mm. So, yeah. And, and uh, you know, what they've obviously done is um, is look for wobbles in the, in the star's spectrum that uh, indicate that a planet is orbiting these stars. Uh, are these 19 red dwarf stars in the same vicinity or are they spread out all over the place? I don't think so. Um, yeah. I don't have details of how they're distributed, but I think, uh, I think they're, all within, um, they're all within a few thousand light years, uh, but I think they're in different parts of the sky. Mm, okay. Yeah, it would probably be weird if they were all together. That would be even weirder. That's right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, there might be, well, it sounds like there is more to learn from this and uh, they'll, they'll keep analysing the data and uh, hopefully they will soon be able to confirm or deny the presence of um, planets orbiting mm. those respective stars. Yeah. And, and just, you know, making the point uh, that, that I uh, made at the beginning of this story uh, with the square kilometre array, uh, which will hopefully switch on in around 2029. Um, this will amplify not only the stars that have already been observed, it will give us much more information in much greater detail, but also uh, will let us see out to much greater distances. Mm, awesome. Okay. So, yeah. Well we we continue to watch with interest that's right i think i think these are relatively local i did say a thousand light years or so but it's actually i think more like a couple of hundred light years the the maximum distance of the ones that have been observed whereas thousands of light years will be possible with the square kilometer array yeah how um just a question popped into my head how common are red dwarf stars they're the most common stars by a long way in our bit of the galaxy so um, I think it's something like 70% of all stars in our neck of the woods, uh, and, and actually probably throughout the galaxy because we're a relatively normal sample. Uh, but, yeah, something like 70% are, are red dwarfs. Would they be livable? Uh, um, you know, yeah, well, that question's been asked a lot, in, particularly in regard to Proxima Centauri, which is a red dwarf and the nearest of all stars to our solar system. Um, and... The, the the thing that makes them uh, probably not the ideal places to find life is exactly what we've been talking about, the fact that these stars are very active uh, magnetically. So you bla you're constantly blasting, uh, you know, uh, Super fast clouds of magnetized particles into the into the vicinity around them. They suffer from solar flares and uh, all the kinds of things that um, would be damaging to evolving life. So you'd need SPF fifty million plus or something. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, I don't even know that that uh, that only stops the electromagnetic radiation. It's the other stuff that's the dangerous stuff. The yeah. um, you know the uh, protons uh, and electrons r r riddling your body. <laughs> High energy. Okay. So important safety tip: do not live on a planet orbiting a red dwarf. That's it. Yes, that's okay. a good, good safety tip. Yes, indeed. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, if you are someone who enjoys social media, uh, let me tell you about our Facebook page. Now, there are two Facebook pages, just in case you're confused. Uh, there's the Space Nuts Facebook page, which is the official 
Space Nuts Facebook page where we upload stories fairly regularly for you to to read and learn and obviously we upload our uh, our podcast links there as well uh, but uh, you can also join the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook which is a user generated page the uh, the listeners created it and that's where you can get together and have a chinwag and and ask each other questions and uh, come up with uh, theories that people can throw their ideas at it, it's a it's a fun group and uh, very much worthwhile getting involved with. So uh, join them both, facebook.com slash Space Nuts and the Facebook page dedicated to Space Nuts listeners, which is the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. I've got a headache now. Uh, let us, uh, Fred, uh, move on to uh, some audience questions. Uh, we've got a, a few to deal with today. The first one comes from Dr. Robert Scott. Hello, Fred and Andrew. Dr. Robert Scott here from the Sunshine Coast. And I have a couple of questions for you. So firstly, what is the temperature of a black hole? If they absorb all matter, light and energy in the space-time around them, surely they should have uh, enormous amounts of energy, boiling like a million stars, but I suspect they may be very close to absolute zero as the extremes of... Um, physics are reached closer to a black hole. I'm guessing this also affects the behaviour of atoms which determine temperature. Second question, what is space-time made of? It has ripples in it, theorised by Einstein and demonstrated in 2015 by LIGO. So surely uh, it has other properties. Mass bends it. Um, we know it's fairly rigid. It's smooth. Um, what else do we know about the properties of space-time? And thirdly, could Professor Fred please explain to me the missing matter in the universe problem? We Surely, we couldn't we just have a, an enormous error which is proportional to the magnitude of our universe, which we also don't understand? Well, could the properties that I alluded to in my second question about space-time uh, and what it's made of, could this account for the missing matter problem? Uh, thanks very much, guys. Thanks for a fantastic podcast. Keep up the good work. Talk soon. Okay. Um, thank you, Robert. Lovely to hear from you. Uh, a triple bunger. I thought he only had two questions. He must have snuck that one in while I wasn't looking that last one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the temperature of a black hole. Yeah. Well, he's right. It's um, very close to absolute zero uh, on the inside. And, um, in fact, you can work it out. It, it, it varies uh, with the mass of the black hole in a very subtle way. The more massive the black hole, the colder its temperature is. Um, and uh, exactly as Robert says, it's because you're looking at extremes of physics that this is the case. Um, immediately outside the black hole, the temperature is hundreds of millions of degrees because that's where the matter is swirling into the black hole uh, and, you know, jostling together and friction raises the temperature. And that's why we can see black holes because of the, uh, the uh, energetic emission coming from their accretion disk, the disk of swirling material around it. Yeah. Um, but the black hole itself is very cold. And I, I just, I'm just kind of having a look to see what's available on this. There is a, uh, a calculator. Uh, you can, if you Google or whatever, 
whatever search engine you like to use, uh, put in black hole temperature calculator, it will take you to this calculator, which is very simple. You put in the mass of the black hole and it tells you what the temperature is. And I can tell you that for the sun, uh, the temperature is a point zero, oh, sorry, for a one solar mass black hole. Let me say that because this is not the sun itself. It's a, a black hole of the mass uh, with the mass of our sun. It's point zero 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 six one seven two degrees Kelvin. So it's wow. you know well under a well under a millionth of a degree there. It's um uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, about a tenth of a millionth of a degree. Okay. So, yeah, within the black hole, it's almost absolute zero, but outside it's a boiling it's, froth it's of, exactly. of hell. Yeah. yeah. Mm, okay. All right. The second part of his question was, what is space-time made of? And, Plasticine. Um, yeah. Dark matter. Yeah, dark you know, matter. Um, what Robert has done there is said kind of what we know about space-time, um, and that's more or less what we know. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's probably one other thing I would add to it in that you can get these virtual particle pairs being created within space-time, something funny happens. Um, but but it is, it's an entity that, in a, in a sense, it's a mathematical entity, Andrew, but it clearly has reality because we do observe distorted space-time in many different ways, either by gravitational waves or by gravitational lenses, which are extraordinary phenomena in deep space. Mm. Um, and you know, in 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 some ways, we've we've gone back to an old idea which was demolished in the late nineteenth century, which was the idea of the ether, and the ether was supposed to be the medium that transmitted light waves, um, and that was demonstrated not to exist because uh, if if that. Um, if that was the case, the speed of light would vary. It would depend on where you know what what your speed is, how what the speed of light would look like. Um, and so, as soon as you say the speed of light is is always in a vacuum, is always the same, then you've got rid of the ether, and but but you still haven't got rid of the idea of some fabric of space. That's the you know in many ways the best way to describe it, and it's a woolly. A woolly term. Um, I might have a, a bit of a look in the physics papers to see if I can get a better answer than that. But it's it is really uh, very very hard to to, to 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 wrap your head around that that, that it's nothing, but it's not nothing uh, yeah. because it can bend. Yeah. Well, I suppose um, you, you say the same thing about dark matter and dark energy. It's it's something, but we don't know. Yes, we don't know right. what. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And the third part of his question was uh, the missing matter question, which I guess is somewhat related. Yes, that's right. So um, I'm assuming by this that Robert means the missing baryonic matter. That's um, normal matter as distinct from from dark matter. Um, Dark matter is something that has a gravitational influence but doesn't interact with uh, normal matter in in any other way. So we, we can't you know, detect it directly or measure it, uh, at least um, under normal circumstances. It's possible that very rarely dark matter might interact with normal matter, and that's why people are building laboratories like the one underground at Storwell in in, um, Victoria here in Australia. However, uh, the 
the dark matter um, is something that, whilst we we don't know what it is, there's a really good, um, I suppose, a good chance that it will turn out to be a a species of subatomic particle that we haven't yet identified. Uh, And there are various candidates in various uh, theoretical models that people have. uh, And I think that's reasonably well accounted for. Um, However, and I think this is coming to the nub of the question, um, when you look at baryonic matter, normal matter, there there is still uh, a fraction of that that hasn't been detected. Now, how do we know that? And the answer is that when you look at the universe on very large scales, um, like the whole of the visible universe, we do things like mapping out the matter of the universe uh, by doing galaxy redshift surveys and work that I was involved with a few years ago. Um, that that lets you uh, take stock of the energy and matter content of the universe because you can look at the way these uh, these galaxies are distributed in space and that actually you can convert to a numerical uh, estimate of what the the mass distribution is and it's not just mass it's matter and energy uh, so the the energy we we know uh, is dominated by dark energy so something like 70 uh, percent of the mass of the of the mass energy budget of the universe is is dark energy around 25 percent is dark matter and about five percent is baryonic matter that's the stuff that is normal matter mm. um, but we don't see that five percent we only see about half of it and probably the best explanation for what that missing matter is uh, has come from work done on fast radio bursts, which has shown that there is uh, a, a plasma that permeates the whole of space, um, electrons uh, and probably uh, protons as well, which uh, has uh, probably enough mass uh, to, to account for the missing matter. That's a long answer to a short question, uh, but it's uh, it's just to make sure that um, I understand the particular brand of missing matter that Robert's yeah. asking about. <laughs> um, it could also be missing biros and pent. And there's that too, yes. Uh, mm. And, um, you know, well, <clears throat> when you get to a certain age, it's missing pairs of spectacles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I've reached that age. Yeah, so have I. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, Robert, thanks for your question. Hope all is well on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, to our final question today, this comes from a place we affectionately call the Gong, otherwise known as Wollongong, south of Sydney. This is uh, from Martin. Hi, guys. It's Martin from Wollongong here again. Um, I have a question about Jupiter and, I guess, other gas giants as well. Um, In the last four and a half billion years or so, um, there must have been billions and billions of tonnes of rocky asteroids that must have hit Jupiter. If that is the case, why is it still a gas giant and not a rocky planet with a huge atmosphere? Or does it actually have a rocky core? Um, if it doesn't have a rocky core, what happens to all the rocky stuff that hits it? Um, why doesn't it travel down Jupiter's gravity well to the centre of the planet? Um, or does it just get smashed up and get blown around in the winds as dust? Um, I guess taking it to the next level, um, 
would happen if an Earth-sized rocky asteroid or two with like an Earth-like composition crashed into Jupiter? Would that be enough to change Jupiter into a rocky planet, albeit with a huge atmosphere? Um, be interested to hear your answers on that one, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Martin. We were only talking about the red spot on Jupiter last week and how it's the same size as Earth. So I would venture to say an Earth-sized asteroid probably wouldn't, um, you know, Jupiter would go, ho, ho, ho. That's yeah. all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, this this multitude of things to talk about there. Um, let's talk about the impact of asteroids today. Um, the entire asteroid yep. belt, Andrew, has a mass of 4% of our moon. The entire asteroid belt weighs 4% of wow. the Earth's moon. So you're talking about, um, you know, just the, the, the last vestiges of debris of the protoplanetary disk, the disk that was around, around the um, sun in the early solar system that formed, mm. uh, that formed the planets. So Jupiter... Um, yeah, even, you know, things do hit Jupiter. They basically just vaporise in the upper atmosphere. Um, there was one only a couple of weeks ago, I think. Uh, uh, That's an, true, yeah. An impact event on Jupiter, which was re recorded by amateur astronomers. Great stuff that they can do this. Yeah. Um, I watched the videos of it, and it just vaporises because it's hitting at high speed, very like the things that hit the upper atmosphere of the Earth. Hmm. Um and you know, there's there's no possibility of a planet-sized object hitting Jupiter and the way the solar system is at the moment because it's utterly stable in terms of uh, planetary orbits. However, it wasn't always like that, and in the early uh, solar system, um, it was the you know the interaction of asteroids together to to form planetesimals and then protoplanets uh, that gradually built up the planets, and the um, the Planets uh, were were formed by collisions by asteroids. Now, in the case of Jupiter, um, Jupiter is above the frost line or beyond the frost line, uh, which means that the uh, some of the volatile materials that were in the dust and glass gas cloud sorry not glass dust and gas cloud that formed the, the solar system they freeze out and so as planets are being built in the solar system when you think of it um, the, the 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 ones beyond it's uh, the, the, the frost line is actually between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter so beyond the frost line you're going to get not just rocks coming together to form planets, but also ices as well. Mm. And that is thought to be why the gas giants grew to be giants, because their, their cores could uh, accrete not just rocks, but icy material as well. And in fact, ices probably um, help rock the, the dust grains stick together when you're forming planets. So out there in the cold reaches, you're going to form much bigger planetary cores and it's because those planetary cores are big and we don't know whether they're rocky or not um some people think it's metallic hydrogen that's at the core of the gas giants whatever it is it was big enough for them for these planets then to collect an envelope of gas around them as well it's because they are so massive that they yeah. that they've been able to collect an envelope of gas and that's why they look like the way they do today so this process um 
did take place very early in the solar system, um, but it's it's you know you, you're now dealing with really giant planets much bigger than um, the four rocky planets, uh, and that is uh, they're, they're very stable because they're so big, they're so massive. Uh, it's unlikely that anything's ever going to hit them that's big enough uh, to disturb that. It sounds like it would take a staggering amount of material. Yeah, and- exactly. It doesn't sound like there's that much material out there it's anymore. Not, no, um, I should say though that um, it's probably the the mass of Jupiter because it did get so massive very quickly in the early solar system, and the the the, the main asteroid belt, the remnants of the protoplanetary disk, <clears throat> that would have been much more massive uh, in the early solar system. But it's probable that um, some of it's been accreted by Jupiter to make it so big, but a lot of it will have been just gravitationally slingshotted out into space by the influence mm. of Jupiter. So yeah. it's probably, you know, the solar system's left behind a trail of debris as it's wandered its way around the uh, centre of our galaxy. Mm. <clears throat> okay. Thank you, Martin. Lovely to hear from you. And um, hello to Wollongong. <laughs> uh, we've got a fair few, a fair few people that listen to us down there. Uh, that brings us to the end. Fred, oh, by the way, if anybody would like to send us questions or just comments, uh, you can do that via our website, spacenutspodcast.com, and just click on the AMA tab up top where you can send us an email or send us a, a voice message or voice question, or you can go to the right-hand side of our uh, homepage and it says, send us your voice message. <laughs> You can do it that way as well. So uh, if you do have any questions for us for future episodes, uh, we'd love to hear from you. We do get a lot of the same kinds of questions uh, over and over, which is uh, which is good. It means everybody's sort of on the same wavelength, but uh, when we answer one, we answer all. So sometimes you, your question might not see the light of day, but that's because we already answered it or we just say, oh, we don't like him. We won't answer that one. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, not true. Not true. Even though Fred told me to say it. Not true. No, it's not true. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So wherever you are, um, send us your name and your location and your question via our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io if you prefer. That's it, Fred. Thank you for uh, your time again today. It's been a lot of fun and uh, good to catch up. Indeed, and we'll speak again soon, Andrew. Nice to we will. Yeah. We will indeed. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts, and thanks as always to Hugh back in the office, um, straightening out all the paper clips as he just loves to do because he's so busy. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company, and we look forward to having you join us again on the very next episode. Bye bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.